Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. Amen, amen. Let's go, guys. How are you doing? You good? It's mediocre energy. Yeah, okay. Hopefully it gets like main character energy later on. All right, we'll get there. Anyway, let's get straight into it. Um, so if you were here last week, then you would have heard me preach. So sorry about that, by the way. Um, but you would have heard me preach on Psalm 73. And um, it's a really interesting psalm. Uh, I thought it was a good time. Hopefully you did too. And uh, in that psalm, we kind of looked at um, this worship leader called Asaph. And uh, Asaph was really popular in his time. He was like one of David's only like choir organizers. And so he was like super known. He was like, had gone to like Bethel School of Ministry, like Hillsong, all of that. Like he was like that, that worship leader. Like if he was coming to Renaissance, you would come basically, right? So Asaph is this really popular guy. And um, we look at Psalm 73. And basically in this Psalm, we, we realize uh, that Faith isn't that easy, right? So faith is, is hard sometimes. And um, we read about how he basically began to slip away um, from God or nearly slipped away from God because he was doubting and envious of all of those around him, all the guys that didn't follow God. And he thought, well, how come they've got it so good and I don't? And so we experience how raw and real this psalm is and how relatable it is to some of the issues that we face as well. Now, admittedly, if you were here last week or you're just hearing this for the first time, uh, it feels like we left it on a bit of a suspense moment. Um, it feels like, we, you know, it just got juicy, it just got real, and Asaph was lamenting, and we were lamenting, and it was this whole, this whole like, big lament thing, right? And um, it feels like we left it on this, like, cliffhanger, but uh, the good news is that your boy isn't going to leave you there. Amen? Someone say amen to that. Your boy isn't going to leave you in a cliffhanger. I'm not Netflix. Uh, I'm coming to bring God's word tonight. And um, we're going to just pick up from the place of lament and move into the place of wisdom. Does that sound good? Yeah? Amen. Cool. So how about I pray one more time um, because it's good to pray and uh, we'll get into it. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you that your word is alive, it's active. It's not this this ancient book of stories that have no relation to our lives, Lord, but the the, the word reads us just as much as we read it. And so, Lord, would you help us to look into areas of our lives, Lord, that are in need of your vision, are in need of your ways. Lord, would you give us wisdom tonight? Help us to understand you more. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. And just, uh, if you're taking notes, you're probably not, um, that's cool. I'm not gonna take a quiz. <laughs> I'm not gonna take a quiz or anything. Um, but if you are taking notes, I guess the main aim at the end of today is, is this, that we would realize the wisdom that followers of God or Christians are called to look at life through uh, a God-centered view rather than a view that is self or culture-centered. Followers of God are called to look at life for a God-centered view rather than a view that, of, that is self or culture-centered. That's our target in the next 25 minutes. So um, in the year 2005, uh, there were two sociologists uh, who um, were experts on culture and all of that stuff, and they basically came together, uh, a guy called Christian Smith and a lady called Melinda Denton, they came together on a research project, and they decided to write a book called Soul Searching. 
And uh, this book was written to try and understand the, the religious and the spiritual lives of teenagers. And to get the information they needed, they conducted one of the largest historical surveys on this topic. Basically, they interviewed about 3,000 teenagers on what they viewed to be God, or what they viewed to be religion or faith. And uh, what they found was, a lot of people actually said was pretty groundbreaking. It was pretty, um, no one had kind of heard this philosophy before what they found. And, and, and basically they discovered that teenagers had, had accepted and embraced a new belief system uh, that defined faith as the following. It defined faith as the following. Number one, doing a lot of good and nice things. Good and nice things. Number two, serving my inner well-being. And number three, having a loose-ish connection with a distant, non-interfering God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, I mean, they seem like pretty cool statements. They're pretty legit. They're not like, they don't sound evil or anything like that. It seems cool. But the, the, the thing is that um, these sociologists found, and the thing that we will find if we look into this, is that uh, these statements, they kind of reveal a belief system that is a real far cry from authentic Christianity. Like, for example, they don't mention anything about salvation or, or sin or judgment or Jesus, none of the, like, the kind of major doctrinal themes in the Bible. And, and so this belief system, this way of thinking, could be summed up by these fancy words. Here it goes. Number one, moral, moralistic. Number two, therapeutic. And number three, deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is what the expert called it. And some of you are like, oh my days, have I just come into like a GCSE class on RE or something? Like, why are we going through these big words? Um, you better define this quick. Like, what are you doing? Um, so I'm going to define these words. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave us there. Um, essentially, what these words mean, uh, it, they, they mean, they kind of reveal a frame of work or worldview that um, most of us will probably find quite familiar to our lives. So number one, moralistic. So life is about doing good things when you can. Life is about doing good things when you can. But the catch is this, good is defined by popular culture rather than the moral essentials in the Bible. So it's okay to sin if it's considered acceptable in a culture, right? It's okay to do whatever. It's okay to get really wasted every Friday night. It's okay to sleep with your partner uh, every, every other weekend. It's okay to do whatever. As long as it's accepted in a culture, it's good. So life is about doing good things. Number two, therapeutic. Life is also about feeling good all the time. And feeling good is the ultimate pursuit of life. And no one, no one ever should interfere with our desire to feel good. And deism. Deism is the idea that life works mostly because God leaves us alone. There is a God, but he kind of leaves us alone. He's in the corner of the universe somewhere. Unless we need him, and then we can kind of just like ring a spiritual bell, and he'll come running and kind of answer our praise for us. So moralistic, therapeutic, deism. And, and when you add these views up together, you can quickly see uh, how this belief system creates for us a God, lowercase g, who is something like a mix between a divine butler, right, just comes whenever we need him, and a cosmic therapist, right? He's always on call, he takes care of my problems that arise, and he professionally helps us without getting too personally involved. And the main thing is this, that he tells you to be yourself, You'll get to the end of the journey. You're all you, you're all you need and, and, and really don't really need me unless someone stops you from being happy and nice and feeling happy and nice. And what we ultimately 
end up with is a self or cultured way or self-centered or culture-centered way of seeing that emphasizes the horizontal relationships around us but minimizes our relationship with God. In other words, it puts humanity, our individual lives, at the center of our own belief system and we begin to look at life through the lens of self rather than the lens of God. Pretty persuasive, right? I don't know about you. I don't know. It, feels, it feels like a good thing, right? Like it's easy to believe. It's real silent in here. I hope this means that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I want to ask you guys tonight as friends, uh, how many of us know that this framework wasn't just invented by teenagers in 2005? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, uh-oh, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us know that it kind of affects us too? This kind of moralistic, therapeutic diism. It's not just a teenager thing, but it's an us thing too. Like, I remember this one time in my life, right? Um, like, before the pandemic, before, like, life got really crazy. Um, and it was, like, one of those, like, real honeymoon periods of faith for me. You know, like, when you just feel like you've got the Midas touch in prayer. Like, you just pray, like, God, just do it, and God does it. And it's like, oh, my gosh, God's so amazing. It's like this real, real honeymoon period. And, and so one day, I'm in this period, and I, lit, I stroll, I walk up, and I go to the barbershop, right? I sit at the barbershop, sit down. And uh, how many of you guys know that the barbershop, a boy in his barbershop, is like a sacred place? Right? How many, amen? It's like you don't interfere with barbershop banter. It's just like, it's heavenly. It's supreme. So I'm sat down at the barbershop, right? And we're bantering and, uh, and uh, we basically get into a really deep conversation, me and my barber, and um, we start talking about God. And remember, I'm in this like real like honeymoon period. Like it's like sick. It's like amazing. Like God's just really good in that season. And my barber is basically telling me that he kind of has a faith, but life gets really hard and he's telling me all these issues. And I'm like, oh, bro, that's cool. Well, like, what do you do about it? And he's like, oh, you know, I don't really know. It's hard to pray sometimes. And I've like just prayed for like 30 minutes that day. So I'm like, oh, really? Like, that, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, um, you know, morning devotion is something we should all do. And, <laughs> and so this guy's getting visibly annoyed. And um, so I'm listening in this honeymoon period state. And eventually it gets to a point where I kind of get fed up with the conversation. I'm just like, bro, look, I won't lie to you. I just think you need to repent and just need to turn to God. And like, you can tell he's not angry. He's really angry. And he kind of like jiggles. And you can see my hairline's never been the same. Um, <laughs> So that's just me just opening up to you guys. It's a safe space. Um, <laughs> but essentially, I come away from this moment like super proud. You know, and I tell my boy, I'm like, yo, like, I was in the barber shop and I just told the barber to repent. Like, I, said, I, said, I said the word. <laughs> and um, it's interesting what happens after this because, because essentially what happens is a massive change. Long story short, in my life, um, I decided to start training for ordination. And it's not really connected to this conversation at all, but I start training for ordination. In other words, I start training to become a priest, right? And as a result of kind of this big life change, loads of other stuff in my life begins to change as well. Like, for example, my finances. Like, I, I move from being an earner to a student overnight, right? And all of a sudden, I can't afford the things I used to be able to afford. I can't do the things I used to be able to do so easily. I can't just waltz into the barbershop and 
just kind of give a tip whenever I want. It's, it's, it gets really, really tight. And so I grew up in a, um, a single parent household and uh, I grew up on estates and it, it got really difficult for my family at the time as well. So I've always supported my family and it got really, really difficult at that time. So like my finances change and I'm thinking, well, well God, I, I chose the good path. Like I'm training to be a priest. Like what, what more can you do? Like what, what's better than that? What's happening, God? Why isn't it working out? So that's happening. And then uh, on top of it, secondly, life gets a little bit lonely. Like all my friends are like, like really like going out and they're getting like coupled up and getting married and all this thing. And I'm spending loads of late nights in the library. Oh, yeah. And um, I start to look at kind of my identity through the lens of my relationship status. I start to look at my identity through the lens of my social life. No longer am I defined by what God says about me, but it's like, is my Instagram feed up to scratch with everything around me, right? And thirdly, I had kind of always measured myself by like success, right? So climbing the corporate ladder or whatever ladder it was in industry. And now as a student, like you have to like have this 18 plus student card and it goes beep, 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 and everyone's like, oh my days. Like, bro, why have you not graduated yet? And, um, <laughs> and you kind of, this, this kind of sense of self-esteem or power that I used to get from academic achievement or whatever just kind of goes out the window of industry achievement. It goes out the window. And so all of this has happened and I'm like, God, what is going on? Like, I've chosen a good moralistic path. Why am I not being blessed as a result? Why has life become all of a sudden really tight and really hard and families struggling and I feel really lonely and all these things are going on. And so I slipped into this moralistic therapeutic diism. And you know what God does? He doesn't respond like a divine butler and snap his fingers and say, well, all right, here you go. Here's a great income and here's a great life partner and here's accomplishments and accolades and achievements. But he says this, look, Temi, I'm going to have to break your relationship with these things because they become like idols. And idols can't make anybody whole because idols haven't made anybody. And so I'm going to have to break it. And it's not going to feel nice and fuzzy, but I need to teach you that your morals and works don't save you, but my grace does. I'm going to have to teach you that it's not going to be therapeutic because I might have to lead you through your lament into my lordship. And I'm also going to show you that the good news is that I won't be distant through this process like in a corner, but I will be with you because that's all I know how to do. Amen? And so God's doing this in me, right? And, and, and so this, this psalm that we're about to read and rediscover, uh, it, it's not just like a distant 3,000 years ago ancient thing. It's reality. It happens to us too. And so let's jump in to Psalm 73. Do you guys remember verse one? If you were here last week, you'll remember verse one. Asaph believed in God. So he, he believed that God is good. God exists and God is good. But in verses two and three, he says this, but as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. In other words, Asa started comparing his life to the culture and society around him. And he sees the following. He sees their health, that their bodies are strong. He sees their good life. He sees their pride. He sees their hateful words. He also sees their popularity. He sees their blasphemy and their carefree life and their wealth. And you see, Asa sees the same troubling evidence that 
many of us see in our own everyday lives. He, he sees that the unbelieving world is doing okay whilst he, a godly person, isn't. And this act of comparison reveals in him this underlying belief that's kind of similar to moralistic therapeutic diism, or you could call it the prosperity gospel or health and wealth, whatever modern day message, self-help message you want to label it. He kind of, it kind of sees this rising in him and he says, God, where is the justice? What about me? And he says in verse 13, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep my, myself innocent for no reason? And just before he slips fully into unbelief, he catches himself in the acts and he says this, well, if I'd really spoken out this way to others, i.e. if I'd ranted all over my social media feed, if I'd labeled myself and defined myself by the term deconstructionist rather than a child of God, I would have been a traitor to your people. He says, what am I thinking? What is this belief system that I've picked up? And he catches himself, or rather God graciously catches him as he tells us in verse 17. He says this, then I went into your sanctuary, O God. Wow. Read that with me, come on. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And what is a sanctuary? A sanctuary is simply a sacred place. It's a place that we set apart from God. A place that we set apart for God, sorry. Kind of a, a place where we meet. Kind of like this, kind of like church. So it's basically, Asaph goes to church and he doesn't let his lament lead him to a life without the Lord, but he lets the Lord lead him out of his lament, right? And he goes into this church, this sacred place that is intentionally set apart for God, and what happens in this moment is that he receives wisdom. Somebody say wisdom. He receives wisdom, the wisdom that I promised you guys at the start, that, that, that followers of God, Christians, are called to look at their life through a God-centered view rather than a view that is self or culture-centered. This is what he receives. This is the revelation he gets in church, in the sanctuary. So catch this, his perspective changes from a self-based or culture-based view of life to a view of life that is God-centered. And there it is, boom, write it down, tweet it, heart it, save it, remember it, do what you need to do. That is good news, he changes. And that gives us good news because it tells us that we can do the same. And it's nothing complicated, it's nothing impossible, but it's something hugely powerful. He changes perspective, he changes the lens in which he views life. He goes from self to God. He goes from culture to Christ. He goes to church, realizes his own sense of helplessness and takes hold of God's mercy. In other words, he repents. Have you realized yet that sometimes God thinks differently to you? And guess who's not gonna change their mind? What repentance does is that it reorientates, it reconnects us with the way that God thinks. It grabs hold of God's perception, God's lens of a matter, and it says, yes, yes, that way, that way that God sees it, that is actually the better way. And so I was walking this way, I was walking this way in my understanding, my analysis, but that way is actually better. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna follow that way. That is repentance, the Greek word metanoia. It means literally a change of mind. And so he changes mind and this changes everything. Why does this change everything, Temi? Well, because when we yield our mind and surrender our self-centered view of reality to God, we discover that our worldly weights and measures get dropped. 
and we're running lighter now on the wings of God's perspective. We begin to see our, our, our Monzo accounts through the lens of God. We begin to see our workplaces through the lens of God. We begin to define our marriages or our singleness through the lens of God. It's not painful anymore, it's purposely living now. We see our jobs or lack of job differently. Our family life is changed and those divisions and those issues in our life, we are catapulted from a place of despair into a place of change. And why? Because we picked up God's way of seeing the world. In other words, it's not a denial of the situations around us, but our habits, our modus operandi, our habits, the way we live and work through these realities changes from the immediate, what's in front of us, to the eternal, what's above us. And this eternal God-centered perspective is what Asaph realizes in verse 25 when he cries out this, whom have I got in heaven but you? I desire nothing more, I desire you more than anything on earth. And do you see it? His heavenly view changes his earthly values. His heavenly view changes his earthly values. And so we see that having an eternal perspective of God isn't this thing that's like reserved for like the level 99 Christians who like pray and fast every single day. Amen. God bless you guys. Please pray for me. Right? It's not just reserved for those guys, but we see actually anyone who is willing and able to come into the sanctuary of God and cry out and repent and say, God, I actually don't have the full picture on this, but can you give it to me? What happens is that we grasp heaven. We literally go into the presence of God. We grasp what he sees and we literally bring it down into our reality. We bring down the revelation that he gives to us in that place, into our workplaces, into our lives, into our relationships. It's what we pray all the time in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a Christian calling, friends. This king, the, the kingdom person is called and designed to look prophetically into the eternal things of God, into God's vision, into God's ways. We're called to look into it, whether it's through prayer, through scripture, through meeting a friend for coffee, where we open up the Bible together in, in a coffee shop. Come on, guys, let's make public displays of Bible study popular again. You guys are like, what? <laughs> Some of you are like, again? <laughs> and was it popular? I don't know, let's do it. Look, guys, as I come into landing, I get that this, this kind, of, kind of prophetic look in this, getting this viewpoint of God is, it can sound airy-fairy because if we're honest, it's quite difficult to do. Sometimes it actually requires us to like be accountable to someone, like open our Bible, or like be honest and confess some of the things we're going through with a friend that's close to us, maybe a friend that we're sitting next to right now requires us to do stuff and, and so it's hard and, and, and also what makes it hard is that when we look into the things of God and then look at the world around us, we will inevitably see a disconnect or a gap between what God wants us to do and what the world is doing. When we learn through the Bible, for example, that God wants all people to be saved but our, our, our friend or our parents still aren't. 
When we sing in church, you're a good, good father, but we've been praying for a partner. We've been praying for God to finally birth that dream or that business uh, desire in us, and it hasn't happened. And I'm struggling to, to sing it. When Easter finally comes around and everyone's posting uh, these, these kind of graphics on their story about he is risen, but we're still mourning the death of that person in our life. And so there's this disconnect that happens. And, and, and the thing is, because it hurts, what we do is that we revert to, to looking at the world and saying, actually, I, I don't want to look at God right now because it's quite difficult and I don't have all the answers. So I'm going to look around me and get my perspective and the way I should live from others. And what is the result of this? Well, the result is that faith gets really confusing, like Asaph found. It gets really hard. We start to compare ourselves and, 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 and we envy things. But here's the good news. The good news is that when we come into the sanctuary, into places, sacred moments, it doesn't have to be church. It's those moments that we intentionally set apart to meet with God. As I said, maybe it's with a friend that you meet up with. I don't know where those moments are for you. Maybe it's on a run. Maybe it's on a walk. Maybe it's 10 minutes at your lunch break. When we set apart those sacred places, we come into understanding that we're not alone in this. That God is going to help us. He's going to give us the revelation. He's going to give us the perspective. He's going to give us the wisdom. And here's the even better news. When we intentionally commit to this way of life, something beautifully, uh, beautifully radical happens. Suddenly, we're not stagnant or, or complacent or angry, but we get a real sense of the awe and the wonder of God. And we're like, wow, you are actually amazing, God. We, we realize that God isn't this distant being who made the world and stepped away from it, but rather he stepped into the world and into our lives and he lives in me. And greater is he who is in me than the one who is in the world. We realize that Jesus felt all the emotions that we feel. He, he's the Jesus that knows me better than I know myself. He's the Jesus that promised to live in all his faithful followers. He's the Jesus that promises in Ephesians to make his home in my heart. And we realize that Jesus is the hope of glory. And we say, wow. And we, and, we, and we do what Asaph do, uh, did, and we sing what Asaph sung, and we, and we sing this, that as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. But not only that, we come out with a desire to tell everyone about the wonderful deeds that he has done. In other words, as I close, I'm going to invite the worship team up. In other words, what happens when we surrender our self or culture-based view of reality and pick up God, God's view of reality is that we are creatively charged, right, to go out into the world and birth a new narrative. There's a last slide that says this. It's verse 28. I'm going to tell everyone about the wonderful things he does. That's where he ends. He ends with a creative and evangelistic zeal to tell everyone about what he's picked up. He doesn't come out of the presence of God and go into the barbershop like I did and, and, and say, bro, you need to repent, like, get, get, like sort yourself out. He doesn't go with this kind of, nothing's wrong with telling someone repentance is a good idea, but it's, it's the attitude. He comes out with an attitude that is creative and he begins to birth new ways. How can I tell people about God? How can I make space in my life to bring people into this heavenly perspective? How can I do this? Is it a simple invite to Alpha? Maybe, I don't know. But is it maybe sitting in someone's pain when they're struggling and not projecting onto them my solutions, but just listening? 
He creatively begins to imagine what it looks like to live every single moment of our mundane lives. Because let's be honest, life is quite mundane sometimes. But he says, do you know what? I'm going to supercharge that with God's perspective every moment, every day, every second. And it changes everything, friends. And that's what God wants to do tonight. We've kind of got the cheat code tonight. We're kind of halfway there because we're already in the sanctuary. Um, So we're halfway there. But why don't you stand with me as we respond? Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.